Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 41 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, give us a five-star review, um, and uh, write us a nice, write a couple sentences about why you like the show. And uh, let's see if we can get a nice repertoire of good reviews, which uh, helps people who are browsing for content, helps them decide if they want to give this podcast a throw or not. And if you do subscribe to the show and you like it, think of one person in your life who you think would like it and share it with them. And uh, let's see if we can't uh, grow the audience of this podcast, shall we? Uh, Episode 41. Um, When I think of 41, the first thing I think about is the Dave Matthews Band song. I think in one of our earlier episodes, I was talking about, you know, we all have bands that we liked when we were younger uh, that we're kind of embarrassed about. And, I mean, I think, I mean, I definitely had a big musical theater uh, chapter of my life um, as a young thespian when I was growing up. Um, But my favorite bands throughout my life have always been kind of, I don't know, not related, you know? I mean, my first favorite band that I can remember, I mean, like, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Michael Jackson. Most of my childhood, it was just being obsessed with Michael Jackson. After that, though, the first favorite artist I can remember is Bone Thugs in Harmony. And I think after that, I was really into the musical Rent for a long time when I was in middle school. And I think shortly after that, my favorite musical item was Dave Matthews Band. And the whole reason that started is I was a drummer. Uh, My first instrument was the drums. And I remember I used to rent these videos from my instructor. He had this like VHS tape video library of all these instructional drum videos. And one of them was Carter Beaufort's... Uh, Carter Beaufort is the drummer for Dave Matthews Band. He had this uh, two-VHS tape series called Under the Table and Drumming. And um, I had known songs like Crash Into Me and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think... But I'd never like, really been a fan of Dave Matthews Band. And I watched this tape, and it opens up with this performance of number 41 with Carter Beaufort in the studio, kind of just doing the drum part. And there was something about the cumulative effect of not just the song, but Carter Beaufort's setup and his style of playing. I mean, I, I must have watched that thing two dozen times. Um, I've since gone down memory lane. You can find the whole series on um, the whole Under the Table and Drumming videos on... Uh, YouTube now, and you go back and watch it, and it's so dated. Like I go, oh my god, this is so '90s. But um, but that had a huge impact on me, and uh, that basically, you know, it was through Carter Beaufort that I was interested in Dave Matthews Band for for a year or two. Um, I'm trying to think what was after that. I think after that was probably like Counting Crows or something like that was my favorite band for a while, and then uh, Radiohead for like two and a half years or something like that, and then it was like Kings of Leon. Um, and after that, I don't know. I think after that, the, the one band that I really, um, got into was probably the 1975 when their first record came out. That was like the, that, that would probably be like the sequence of my favorite bands over, oh, who knows how many years. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. When I do these episodes, sometimes I try to find some correlative, you know, something important in the, um. I don't know, the episode number and and something from my life. It's just a way to get the stream of consciousness started. Um, As I'm talking, though, I had two people reach out to me recently and remind me that they listen to the podcast. One was a coworker of mine who I'm friends with. 
And I remember they messaged me. I mean, we're all working remotely now, but um, they were able to message me through this app that we have. And she was like, hey, I listened to the last uh, episode of your podcast, and I feel kind of like a voyeur. And my first response was, "Uh, yeah, that's very voyeuristic, because I've said many things, especially on the last few episodes here, that I would never repeat at work. And, um, and, um, I don't know, I guess it has me thinking because I, you know, she's very thoughtful and, and said, well, you know, if you don't want me listening to the podcast, that's okay. And I said, no, it's absolutely fine. You can listen to this. I just, you know, it's, <clears throat> this is a space for me to sort of talk about how I'm feeling about stuff. And, and sometimes I talk about things here that I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have really quite figured out, you know? You know, I'm I'm very open about the fact that this is sort of a stream of consciousness thing, and you know, my um, I don't know. We we uh, wade through some murky issues, and sometimes I'm uh, you know I don't have all my ideas put together about certain things, and I sort of talk them out the same way I would at home. You know, uh, my girlfriend, as she's been spending more time here during the day and seeing me work, she realizes I I actually talk to myself a lot of times. I'm like working on a paper or uh, typing an email. Uh, and I, and I talk to myself and what she doesn't see is when I'm actually alone, I do kind of just kind of do sometimes do what I do here on the podcast, which is just talk through an idea out loud in a sort of stream of consciousness fashion. Anyway, that's what we do here on the podcast. And so I think I was just trying to articulate to that person is I'm, I'm happy to have you listen to the show, but there's a difference, um, you know, for people who listen, people like yourselves who don't know me who listen to the podcast and someone I know in my actual life. And there are things I would say here on the podcast that I would never say in certain arenas of my life. And not because I'm, you know, necessarily embarrassed about those things, but because, you know, there's certain topics of conversation that are appropriate in some places and not in others. And so I think I was just asking this person to um, just understand that my creative output is different than my work life. Um, I was also, I, I got a text from a friend of mine named Davis, uh, who was somebody that I went to, you know, when I was like languishing at a junior college in Tucson, Arizona, studying music. Uh, he was a classmate of mine and he texted me and it was very kind of touching. He said, I actually, I, I, I just finished listening to all the episodes of your podcast. And, um, and, uh, I think he said his favorite episode was wheezing the juice. I don't know what number it is, but you can go back at the logs and look at it. He said that was his favorite episode. Um, but, um, it was just kind of, it was just kind of touching because you, you do have, you know, Davis is someone who I've always had fond memories of. I've always thought very highly of, and in some ways he's always been this totem in my life of, you know, what someone can accomplish if they just work hard and and work steadily because you know when I was growing up I always thought of myself as being I don't know kind of a talented guy and when I usually start things for the first time I tend to do pretty well at them um unfortunately uh, I think one thing I'm, I'm continually working on is is sort of my my work ethic and I'm happy now that I'm an adult that that I think I think a lot of that stuff kind of works itself out as you get older but um, there was just something I, I realized in myself and in my uh, compared to my peers, especially when I was younger, where I felt people just had a, a much stronger work ethic than I did. And when I would start things, I tend to I, I was able to trade on my talent in the very beginning. But um, inevitably, after you know a certain period of time, I would look up and see that uh, the people who were just kind of putting their head down and just doing the work diligently. 
um, were beginning to, I was being, I was beginning, beginning to fall behind those people. And Davis was one of these people that I went to school with who was a great guy, but also just had a really good work ethic. And I remember even after, I mean, when we were in class together, I realized, holy shit, this guy's like really, he's really absorbed the material over the the courses that we've taken. And he's really kind of, I could see very tangibly that he was getting out of the courses, the cumulative body of knowledge that I was starting to feel myself not getting, if that makes sense. And even over the, the the course of our lives. I mean, I ended up moving to California and uh, we did kind of stay in touch at different points, you know, and he went on and got his bachelor's in music and uh, yeah, music education and uh, was teaching, uh, I think it was like a band teacher for a high school. <clears throat> and I thought, well, sure as shit, man, he did it. And meanwhile, I was like working in bars and like writing songs on my guitar and like recording records at my house and, and, and didn't really feel like I was doing much of anything. Um, but Davis also reminded me in this text that he sent me, um, he said that he had been listening to my music the entire time also. And that, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people who say, oh, hey, good job with your music or, oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty good or something like that. Um, and it sounds weird to say, but it is refreshing every once in a while when I get these messages from people where, you know, they, they try to impress on me the idea that they that my music has really, uh, meant something to them. And, um, you know, it, it was an important part of their life, uh, so to speak. And, um, I was really touched that Davis said something like that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, you know, it's easy for me to brush that kind of stuff off because it's just hard to let in for whatever reason. And, um, there was something as I was looking at that text that I said, man, I wish I could bottle this up and like take it with me instead of just letting it like roll off my you know, roll off my back or something. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, in all likelihood, Davis is probably listening to this. I just wanted to thank him for saying that. Um, speaking of the past, our MVP of the podcast, Matt Evans was literally just here yesterday, believe it or not. Uh, he had spent some time in Austin, excuse me, uh, with his wife and they were driving back up to Portland where they live. And uh, in route, they stopped here um, and were here uh, for a couple hours yesterday afternoon. And man, it was so good to see him. And we caught up. I think it was the first time I'd seen him in person in probably like seven or eight years or something like that. And uh, um, it's I think we were both reflecting that, you know, there are friends in your life who you can not see them forever. And the minute you do see them, it's like no time had passed at all. And to be fair, me and Matt speak at least once or twice a month and we will talk for an hour or two at a time. So, I mean, we're both very aware of what's going on in each other's lives and we're very much connected, but we don't see each other. And, um, we didn't really get into it yesterday, but it's something that we've talked about at length other times, which is, I think there's something about how me and Matt are both wired, which makes, I mean, the fact that we haven't seen each other, I I sometimes wonder if that is what makes our friendship possible in some ways, or at least what's made it so enduring. Um, I can't speak for him, but I mean, he's known me in many chapters of my life and there were times where it was very difficult for me to connect with people and it was very difficult for me to, um, it was, it's been difficult for me to let people into my life and especially for any length of time and especially, um, to maintain a relationship with them, 
uh, in the way that a relationship is normally maintained, which is like you see people frequently, you hang out with them frequently. They're, they're, you know, they're a part of your life. Um, and, uh, that just wasn't very easy for me, um, especially when I was younger. And I think there's always been something about the fact that, you know, even though in the, in the beginning, there was a time where we lived very close to each other and saw each other frequently. I think as we both grew up, um, I think what has made our relationship possible is the distance between us. The fact that we could just talk on the phone for hours and share what was going on in our lives and in some ways kind of be closer and share more than maybe we would with other people because we were at a distance and because, you know, we didn't feel this accountability to each other. Like, oh, well, I want to tell you this thing about me, but I don't want it to color our conversation the next time you and I are sitting across from each other at Denny's. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, I mean, it's something that comes up for me, you know, when I work on the crisis lines, which is, which is, you know, you have strangers tell you things that they've never told anybody in their life. And I think part of it is this, this, um, disconnect of sorts when you're just speaking with someone over the phone, there is this safety and not, uh, feeling their gaze or their judgment. Do you know what I mean? And um, I just feel like that is something that has contributed to our relationship. And it's not, I mean, when I do see him, of course, I, um, especially now that I'm in a very different place in my life, you know, when I do see Matt, I think, wow, I wish he and I lived closer because I know that we would get a lot out of just being in proximity to each other. Um, But it was great to see him and his wife. And I met his dog, Sam, and... I mean, I said to my girlfriend who uh, was also there, I said about maybe like 20 minutes before they showed up, I said, oh, he's bringing his dog. I'm like as excited to see uh, um, his dog as I am to see him. And uh, it was nice. And when you get older, you have these moments, like, like five minutes after they left, I'm just sort of doing the dishes with my girlfriend. And I said, um, it's nice when you get when you get older to have good couples in your life. And... I was also, I mean, I'm, because I'm thinking of a few things, which is I'm very happy that for many of the most important people in my life, like my guy friends, one of them is my brother, another one I'd say is Matt, um, and I have a few others, but everybody that I know and care about has met a good woman and married a good woman. And I can't think of anybody that I know who I, you know, am, I care for deeply who ended up with somebody I didn't like. And I think life is long and I, and, and when you get older, you realize that, you know, people, people don't eventually divorce just because they married the wrong person. You know, all sorts of things can happen and who knows what the future is going to bring. But, um, I just, I'm so happy that all the people in my life that I care about married good people. And I know that they married, um, you know, probably the best person for them. And, especially now that I'm with someone that I care about deeply and, you know, I'm working on building a life together with, I'm just so relieved that when I sit across from someone like Matt and his wife, or I'm with my brother and his wife, I just think, wow, I genuinely like these people. Um, but it also does make me feel a little isolated too, because as I get older, I think I would like to live in a city where I have another couple like Matt, like my brother. Um, where we can just kind of be around each other and do things together. And I know that sounds commonplace, and maybe that's not a revelation for you. Maybe you do live near your family. Maybe you do live in the same city as many of your friends, and you guys are all coupled up, and you guys go out on double dates and shit. But um, that has not been a part of my life. 
And um, I don't know what the solution is for it. It's just something that I continue to think about. <sighs> but anyway, it was also sad because I realized, you know, Matt's been the MVP of this podcast for, for, for this year. Um, I guess it, I guess we said it was for 2019, but um, at the end of this year, we're going to have to crown somebody else. And I got to be honest with you, uh, it's a little nepotistic, but I think it might have to be, unless somebody else steps up to the plate and, uh, and, and does a lot for this podcast, it might have to be my brother. So, Oh, yo, yo, yo. Um, sorry. Stretching on you motherfuckers. Oh, stretch. Um, I'm actually desperately trying not to talk about this because I actually don't really feel like I have much to say. But one thing that was at the front of my mind is um, the news uh, of, of what's happened with Chris D'Elia. Do you guys know about this? I've mentioned Chris D'Elia on this podcast many times. And uh, he's a, a comedian actor and um, was one of the main inspirations for me starting this podcast in the first place. Um, we probably talked about it in, a, in the last two episodes because... <laughs> or, because as soon as I heard the news about Chris Lee, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to have to probably, I'm probably going to have to address this in some capacity. But, um, you know, the two reasons I started this podcast were one, the Chris Lee podcast, uh, congratulations, which I stumbled on, you know, maybe like a year ago or so. And I just fell in love with. And for me, it was exactly what I wanted to create for myself, which is I was, I knew I was transitioning out of music. I was looking for some kind of creative outlet and whatever the Chris Leah podcast, um, was to me at the time was exactly what I wanted with somebody else. It was like finding a new friend or something. And I would look forward to, you know, getting on YouTube and pl- having his podcast play in the background as I was doing homework or even just sitting there and watching him. And over the, you know, very quickly, I went through the first, like, maybe like 100 episodes or so. And I went through them two times after that. You know, it's like I would finish it, start over, finish it, and start over. And, uh, you know, that was over the course of many, many months or whatnot. But um, that was a, ve- that, you know, for me, that was a clear, very clear idea of what I wanted to do. I said, oh, here's, if I'm not doing music, this is exactly the type of thing that I would want to do. And then the other part of that was the Brady Sinellis podcast, which I would listen to a lot when I was sort of driving around. And so those two things together were really like, um, if I did a podcast, this is what I would want. I would want it to be conversational and hopefully funny, um, like the Chris Leo podcast, but you know, I'm not a stand-up. <laughs> I don't think I can just do a straight-up comedy podcast. I'm not going to be online, like, you know, playing clips for the listeners and just sort of riffing on them and being hilarious the whole time. There was something about the Brett Easton Ellis podcast that was kind of funny and intellectual, and, you know, he was talking about film and those types of things, and I thought, I, I would like to just have a space to talk about my interests and, my and, and you know, my very personal take on the things that I enjoy. So, those... Th- things together, um, are the reason that I do this podcast now. Um, what came out in the news recently though, is that Chris Leah, um, is being accused of, um, um, honestly, I don't even know, but it's something like he's being accused of soliciting, uh, underage girls for nude photos, uh, possibly grooming them for a sexual encounter. Um, I did read the article that came out, um, and I can't rem- even remember what publication it was. It could be, you know, an LA publication or the times or something like that. Um, and a lot of what's in there is pretty 
disturbing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, he's not the only one to do this, but it's very common for successful men, celebrities who, you know, have verified accounts on social media to not only get messages from people, but to sort of, as they say, slide into the DMs of uh, people that they find online and find attractive. And because they're successful, um, you know, it's a way to sort of connect with people. And what it's what seems to have happened is Chris Alia, at one point in his, in his career, and maybe not recently, but at some point in his career, um, had approached uh, many females on Instagram, especially um, asking them for nude photos and you know asking them to meet up with him at shows and stuff. And um, what's not what is clear is that some of these women were under eighteen. What's not clear is if Chris Alia was aware of it. Um, they do share at least a couple of examples that demonstrate that when he was aware that they were 16, uh, he stopped communicating with them. So I don't know. On the one hand, I think because I've been so evangelical about him in the past, there's a part of me that wants to, I feel like I have to apologize for my interest in him. Um, I don't know that I really feel that way. I've always been the type of person who I, I completely understand, um, um, withdrawing your support of somebody for their actions. That makes sense to me. Um, but I really can't take back how much I enjoy his podcast, um, how much it's meant to be and how much, uh, of a fan I have been of him until now. Um, I mean, I know if he came out with a podcast tomorrow, he's been, he's been very silent on this whole issue and his podcast hasn't come out in a couple of weeks, but you better believe I'm going to see that next episode because I hope he does have something, um, to say about it. I, I think he should address it on the podcast, but, um, yeah, I, I'm, I guess, you know, maybe this is a privilege as a, as a white man, but I mean, I, I sort of think about, you know, Wagner or somebody like that who was a horrible anti-Semite. It doesn't really change the fact that he wrote some of the best operas in the, in the, in the repertoire. <clears throat> so I don't know. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it or, or, you know, take too strong a stance on any like aspect of this because I, I'm just not privy to all the facts here, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's disappointing because one thing I think about as I get older, or maybe I should back, maybe I should back into this point this way, which is, you know, I've said at times as someone who, who uh, failed to have a creative career, a lot of times when I, when someone like myself says anything critical about the profession, it just sounds like sour grapes because you think, um, oh, they're just saying that because they weren't successful. And now any criticism I have of the industry or people who have been successful inside of it just sounds like some sort of rational rationalization for my own, my own failure to launch or, or whatnot. But um, and that may be true. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, from my very personal perspective, um, there's a lot of, you know, there were a lot of times in my career where I was offered an opportunity that I didn't take or that I, um, that didn't come to fruition because I, I sort of stood up for myself in a way that, you know, I knew would, would probably put me in a position for that person to say no, but there were certain things I just had to stand up for. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, most recently I was approached by this record label in, uh, in London, um, who wanted to license some of my songs. And I basically gave them the call. I didn't respond to their first couple emails, but they kept following up 
And I said, oh, okay, well, they're pretty persistent. So um, I basically just put, you know, I, 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 you know I'm, I'm very short in my emails to people. And I just said, you know, you guys basically have to demonstrate to me why this is worth my while. Because right now I keep 100% of the digital royalties. You know, what can you offer me that would make it, why, why should I even begin to consider splitting the money with you? Um, so they sent me this whole like prospectus and this case history thing or whatever you want to call it. And so they finally made me an offer and I balked at it and I said, you can multiply, you know, they wanted to give me an advance or something like that. And I, I just said, multiply it times five and divide, you know, the licensing term that you're wanting by five and I'll, you know, I can begin to consider it. And they basically just said no. But when I made that offer to them, it wasn't just because I wanted to fleece them. But because, you know, I crunched the numbers and that's what it takes. I was like, this is what I would, this is, this is genuinely what I would want to, to do this moving forward. Anyway, I'm not sure that this is going to come to an effective point here. Um, what I'm trying to say is, um, yeah, I think I'm trying to say that there are a, you know, you could find a line around the block of people who would have taken the first terms that they offered. And I said, no, because I just thought it wasn't worth it. And I couldn't sacrifice. It was the principle of the matter for me. This is what I deserve. This is what I'm entitled to. And I don't want to do business with anyone who's not going to give me that. Okay, fine. The answer is no, they've moved on. That's fine. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know if this is, I don't, yeah, I don't know if this is making sense to you, but the point I'm trying to make is it's disappointing for me, for someone like Crystal Lee, who's successful. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm continually disappointed that successful people, people that I respect creatively, they are not they They turn out to be like, I'm just very disappointed in their moral fiber. They seem on the surface, as entertainers, they're very entertaining, but there's something, when we dig a little deeper, we find that they are, they have, I don't know, they're kind of spoiled, right? They're kind of, um, why can't they just be beneficent? And I'm not saying that there aren't good people who are successful, but the one thing I try to consider, is there something about, you know, is there something about the people who are successful that they just are more willing to sell their soul in certain ways. Does that make sense? Um, I'm trying to say, I, I've thought about this in terms of, we've talked about this in terms of Donald Trump in the past, which is Donald Trump is insane. Donald Trump is a, a narcissist. A narcissist. He has a, he has a, <laughs> he has a diagnosable personality problem. Um, and yet he's the president of the United States. And there's something about his constitution, whether or not you want it for yourself, you have to, you know, you know, if you, if you disregard the consequences of living this way or the effect that his, um, the fact that he's in a position of power has on other people, there is something almost admirable in his monomaniac, monomaniacal ability to focus on the objective. He doesn't care who he hurts. He doesn't care whether or not what he says is the truth. What he wants to accomplish is whatever he wants for himself. And that has certain, in terms of reaching the goals that he wants, that mindset is able to help him do it. For people like myself, it's much harder. And um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it is the case. Like, I want to have a successful creative career, but when I'm sitting across from someone who's trying to negotiate a deal with me, uh, instead of just taking what they offer me, which is a step ostensibly toward the goal that I'm trying to accomplish, 
I set certain terms for myself. And a lot of times those terms now disenfranchise me from that opportunity. Um, so there's a part of me that just thinks, well, if I could just let go of some of these principles that I feel standing in my way that have more than once in the past kept me from an opportunity that I, you know, kind of would have liked, actually. Um, maybe I'd be more, quote, successful in my career. Um, but I, I'm not able to, for whatever reason. And so when I look at someone like Chris D'Elia, who I think, man, well, there's a, there's a good guy who's been successful. He's funny, he's intelligent, whatever. But when we actually look at who they are, they're, they're, you know, I'm not saying they're a completely different person. I mean, people are complicated. I think people are, you know, profoundly compartmentalized. They're able to do both great things while at the same time doing horrible things. But it just, you know, the whole time I thought about this, I've just thought, I mean, Chris D'Elia used to say something on his podcast frequently. Um, he liked this quote that he had heard, which is, it's something like, you've already done the thing that will be your undoing. And now that this has come out, I think it's pretty clear for a lot of us, like, oh, he was probably thinking about that. And when this whole Me Too thing came out, there must have been a huge part of him that woke up every day just waiting for this news to break. I mean, if you've done this, you know that there are who knows how many females in the world who have screenshots of your emails to them, your interactions with them, your instant messages with them, your direct messages with them, of you soliciting them for nudes, soliciting them for sex, uh, trying to get them to come to your shows, and you just think, who, who would play so fast and loose with that? Meaning, how could you surrender so much power to other people? I mean, aside from the fact that, you, that you're constituted to do it anyway, right? I mean, even if you were, um, you know, even if you worked at a fucking um, discount tire store in Biloxi, Mississippi, and nobody gave a shit if these conversations ever surfaced, how do you live with yourself knowing that this is out there? Um, I mean, he must have just felt like he was living with a sort of Damocles over his head the entire time, you know, these last few, really year, two years even, maybe. The fact that it's come out, um, you know, and of course, I mean, the women who felt like they couldn't come forward with this, et cetera, are the real victims here. Um, but I, there's a part of me that is sad for him because I think, you know, his career could be irre- irreversibly um, destroyed, possibly. And maybe it deserves to be, I don't know. But, um, you know, he just had a kid and I just think... Imagine living with this. You know, how do you explain this to your... You know, most of us, when our kids Google us, the most embarrassing thing they'll find is some photos or some Facebook posts that we made or, you know, the fact that we were a Dave Matthews Band fan when we were in middle school. That may be the most embarrassing thing about us. Um, Imagine trying to command your child's respect, you know, when they have access to your fucking Twitter feed, right? But could you imagine trying to explain that to your son? I mean, this type of behavior... I couldn't. You know, and again, I'm not saying that Crystal Lee is the victim here. I'm just saying I'm sympathetic to the fact that, you know, guilty or not, he's in a time of crisis. And I would just be eager for him to, to, I would just want to hear what he has to say about the whole thing. I know he came out with a statement where, um, 
You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what his stance was. It was apologetic. It was trying to take some, you know, it's like most of these statements. He was, he was uh, admitting to some culpability, but it was a very qualified um, apology. And um, I think a lot of people believe you're just supposed to come out and, and just apologize for everything and just take it on the chin. But, you know, I don't know. If you genuinely feel like you're, you know, maybe, I don't know, this is the way the world works. Sometimes we're guilty of some things, but we're not... You know, we're not, um, you know, we're not uh, guilty in the way that we're being portrayed. Maybe we do feel like we're being misrepresented, etc. So, I don't know. Is it weird that I feel for the guy in some weird way? <sighs> anyway, I don't know. I, I would just be eager to hear what he has to say about the whole thing, frankly. I don't know. Guilt is a funny thing. When my buddy Matt was over here, literally as he was arriving, I was watching, and I just finished it today. Um, you know, we've talked on the podcast that I, I've really been interested in listening to interrogations, um, police interrogations, watching interrogation videos of people that you know are guilty. And you just, as the interrogation goes on and on, you just feel the walls like closing in on this person and their frantic efforts to lie and they get caught up in their own bullshit and um just watching their it's just it's 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 sort of anxiety inducing for the most part but one thing i was watching was this seven hour deposition as i was doing homework i was having it playing in the background this seven hour deposition of this dude i think his name is like cleo watts the third or something like that and he was being deposed for um he had defrauded people with millions of dollars trying to import gold from Ghana or something like that. I mean, do you ever get these emails where it's like a, a, a you know, a Nigerian prince who's trying to export gold and some sort of bullshit? I, 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 I genuinely don't understand what the circumstances are, but it sounds like he was doing something like that with people and apparently had defrauded people with millions of dollars. And it's this seven hour deposition of him you know, just talking about his finances and they're going over his bank statements. And it's just, um, I think it would bore the shit out of most people. But for some reason, to me, it's endlessly fascinating, especially, um, you know, part of it is hearing the liar, the person who's being accused, but it's also evaluating the interviewer or the interrogator. And sometimes you watch these police interrogations where, you know, it's this interesting confluence of the crime is intriguing, the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator is intriguing, um, maybe there's an oddity about them, maybe they're, um, there's something comical in the way they lie. I mean, the one that me and Matt were talking about with this one was this one where this woman was a police detective herself and had served on the force for 30 years, but like 20 years ago, she killed someone. She had like killed the wife of an ex-lover, had thought she had gotten away with it. Um, as the case was reopened, um, she sort of surfaced as the prime suspect, was brought in for questioning, had no idea that that's what she was coming in for, and was sat down. And the first question they asked her was, hey, do you know this person? And the look on her face was like, I mean, imagine being in a room, you killed someone 20 years ago, you thought you'd gotten away with it. And you know, maybe nobody had mentioned this person's name to you in the intervening 20 years. And then all of a sudden someone sits you down on a Wednesday afternoon or a Wednesday morning and just says, Hey, do you know, do you know, Joan Smith? And you just go, Oh fuck. Everything I never wanted to have happen is now fucking staring me in the face. 
So that's one. But I think what I was saying is one of the intriguing parts is the person conducting the interview. And sometimes the interrogator is not very, I don't want to say good, but I don't know. There's a, there can be a, a not very human quality to them. But there's something about this deposition that I was watching where the the de- I don't know, do you call him the deposer? <laughs> um, was just, was great. This guy who he was speaking to was actually kind of a good bullshitter. Not that the truth value of what he was saying was credible, was credible, but his presentation. On some level you believed, oh, he's telling a bunch of bullshit, but he believes what he's saying on some level. Um, but the deposer, for lack of a better word, was just cutting through all his bullshit. And I was just so impressed with the guy. Like, God, this guy really knows his shit. But there was also something about this person being deposed that reminded me of the movie, uh, the Matt Damon movie, The Informant. Have you seen that? That is a fucking great movie that I don't think a lot of people saw. Um, And I I don't want to say too much about it, but it's something about a guy who works in some kind of mundane office building type setting. um, And for some reason, he gets involved... It's some sort of government thing where he's like an undercover agent. Maybe there's some sort of, he believes he's kind of an informant for the police for some kind of insider trading or something, but he's like wearing a wire and um, feeding information to the feds and helping them build a case. And as the thing, as the movie starts to go, the line between what's real and fake begins to blur. And on some level, you're not understanding if this guy I don't know. You, you start to question the mental health of Matt Damon's character. Anyway, it's a great movie. You should watch it. it kind of reminds me of... There was another movie with Sam Rockwell. I think it was called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind or something like that. I think it kind of orbited the same topic. Anyway. What am I getting at? I don't know. Something about Chris Talia. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just saying I'd be curious to hear what he has to say about the whole thing. Hmm... But yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, between Michael Jackson, who was one of my favorite artists growing up, to Chris D'Elia, it's just so disturbing to me to think that almost across the board, all of my interests, at all, all of the major creative influences on me in my life have turned out to be fucking people who have done bad things. And... I know it's super easy to get out my fucking pitchfork and my fucking torch and just say that these are bad people who need to be crucified. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not willing to do that necessarily. I mean, of course, there's like the Michael Jacksons of the world where you're um, pretty irre- irredeemable, but, but I don't know. I mean, another one is David Copperfield. I mean, he was, uh, um, he was, he was sort of me too at some point. I don't think he got a lot of publicity, but you just think, what is it about success Excuse me, what is it about what is it about successful men that when they get in that position i mean i i i I get cheating, I get um being a celebrity and have women throwing themselves at you, I get getting caught up in that, but I don't get the predatory aspect of it. I don't get i mean. There's something about power and wealth where I can understand kind of feeling invincible, I think. I think a lot of times when you're successful, you just think that 
the rules don't apply to you in some way and you do feel invincible. And maybe the things that you're doing that eventually become things that you are in trouble for are things that have just worked enough times that you think it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I guess I'm just thinking when you have that kind of money and influence and power, why can't you just be beneficent? I mean, if you really want to extend your power and influence, be a good person. But maybe it just doesn't work that way. I think what I was trying to say, especially with the whole business thing and being principled, is I wonder if, I wonder if on some level to be successful, to have success in certain areas, and maybe the entertainment industry is one of them, maybe you do have to concede Maybe you do have to make, sorry, maybe you do have to make certain concessions, moral concessions, concessions of principle or whatever along the way that just, that that just kind of becomes habitual. I don't know. I don't know. I can only speculate. Anyway, I feel like I feel with this topic, how I feel with a lot of the topics we talk about here, which is it feels important. I wish it was something I had. uh, I wish it was something that I had cogent things to say. I wish it was something about which I had cogent things to say. I wish I, um, I don't know. I wish I had a singular, a hot take on it or a singular perspective, but I don't. I just feel like I'm kind of wading through the murky mess of what it is. And, um, and I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to say about it. (sighs) I think I struggle because on some level I feel like I know what I am supposed to say about certain things and I just... I don't know. I feel like I always have a, I don't know. I have a more nuanced perspective that I always try to convey. And I, I guess it's hard for me to talk about because I want to share how I actually feel about things, but I also have this other voice in my head that's going on at the same time about how I'm not supposed to feel that way. You know, and I I can already hear the, the criticism that some people would level against what I'm saying. And I think it's been, I think it's been hard too, because, you know, on, on some level, I do have some people from, you know, the the regular listening audience who tell me that a lot of what I say resonates with them, that they actually feel a lot of the same thing. And, and they kind of like hearing me just kind of talk through this stuff because, you know, maybe we don't get to some sort of concrete conclusion, but at least it's, you know, the thoughts that I'm having and the, and the way in which I'm trying to work through some of these thoughts is, you know, it mirrors how, how they're feeling. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. What I'm thinking about is um, I've been taking this. I mean, summer school proper has started for me and I'm taking communications and sociology. And it's sort of funny how, you know, if I was religious, I would say it's, you know, it's uh, God's good work um, um, manifesting in my life or, or something like that. But a lot of times in my life, I just feel like I'm kind of in the right place at the right time. And to be taking both communications and sociology right now is very timely, um, especially sociology, where a lot of the topic is social change and um, 
um, you know, social movements and those sorts of things. And so a lot of what we're talking about is sort of being seen right now through the prism of Black Lives Matter and, and all that sort of stuff. But we also have a lot of writing assignments for communications where we have to reflect on interactions that we've had and and how people see us and how we see other people and stereotypes and all that sort of stuff. And of course, a lot of that's being filtered through current events with uh, Black Lives Matter, the protests. And uh, so we have these, you know, a few writing assignments every week. And and most recently, there's there's two things I had to write about that um, um, were kind of important to me. And I, I, I haven't really, you know, put pen to paper or really kind of told these stories, uh, even though they've, they're, they're things that I've, I've thought a lot about. Um, I want to start with the easier one first, but I know I've mentioned his name in the past and I probably talked about him uh, briefly, but I wrote a longer piece for my communications class about my relationship with a, with a gentleman named Dr. Bob, um, who, um, well, if you if you live in the Bay Area and you happen to know who Dr. Bob is, it's probably because you've seen him sitting outside of the Ashby Bart station with his banjo busking. And he's a gentleman who's in his mid-60s. He has a long white hair and beard. Um, in, my, uh, in the piece that I wrote, I said he looks like a Gary Larson uh, rendition of Santa Claus Come to Life if Santa Claus had abandoned the workshop to drop acid and join the Merry Pranksters. And Dr. Bob would just sit outside of the Ashby Bart station with his banjo and like just busk for change for, for literally the thousands of people that walked in and out of there every day on their commute to work or whatnot. And Dr. Bob lived on a bus, a school bus that had been turned into his home that was parked on, on Ashby Avenue in Berkeley. And I think he had, he lived there for like a year. And um, this was sort of in the vicinity of where I was living. And I, I remember how we met. I don't remember how we really got ingratiated with each other, but around that time in my life, I would spend the day just kind of walking around, um, different neighborhoods. Um, this one happened to be Berkeley and I was like taking photos and stuff. And I had this like, um, Instax camera. So I would take these, you know, instant photos or whatnot. And I stumbled across this bus, which had been completely graffitied over, uh, many times. Uh, it's like anybody who, who had a can of graffiti and happened to see his bus would just fucking bomb the thing. So it was this wild looking bus. And it was like the further bus for the Merry Pranksters. Uh, I mean, do you guys, uh, the Merry Pranksters are, if you ever read Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, the Merry Pranksters were just this band of people who followed uh, Ken Kesey, the author. Um, I think they were living around La Jolla at the time in California, but they had this bus that they named Further, which was just like their vehicle. And they would travel around on this bus and drop acid. And, and um, it's a fascinating story. You should read the Electric Aid Acid Test. But it was something like that. It was this wild looking bus that he lived on. And of course, I was taking photos. I think he happened to see me taking photos one time. We you know, exchanged some words. I may have given him a photo or whatever. But we just kind of I don't know. I, I don't remember at what time he, you know, invited me onto his bus or how we became friends. Um, but uh, we did. And it, it, I mean, it even got to the point where like we were texting every day. Like he and I were both really into the I Ching at the time. And so every day when I would consult the I Ching, I would send him, I basically consulted the I Ching for the both of us. 
And, uh, you know, the reading that I had, I would assume by extension was the reading for Dr. Bob. And I would send him the reading and we would sort of text back and forth our thoughts about it. And then when I would see him, I would bring him like tobacco. Sometimes I'd bring him some cannabis. And, um, and we would just sort of sit on his bus sometimes for a couple hours and just sort of talk about religion and spirituality and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I guess the thing I've been thinking about recently is just how who I am and who I thought he was over the course of our relationship really affected the way I interacted with him. And I think I was trying to be honest, and I think most people would understand this, but I mean, initially my first interest in Dr. Bob was his oddity, you know, and there was a part of me that felt kind of lucky that one of the stranger characters of the, of the community that I lived in was kind of willing to let me into his life a little bit. And there was something exciting and, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know the word for it. it. There was something exciting or about being shown his world, being allowed to, st- you know, board his bus and sit with him and, and share parts and see parts of his life and see how he lived. And at the very beginning, especially, it was just kind of a cool thing. Um, as I, like any relationship though, as I got to, as I got to know him and I got to see what his life was really like, it became much more nuanced very quickly. And especially, you know, this is not a disparaging comment. It just is the case. Um, you know, he was living with some mental health issues and when he was relatively well, we were texting every day and, um, seeing each other on a regular basis. And I would actually make a point sometimes in the afternoon to just sort of march out, um, from my place, try to find where he was parked and, uh, you know, and kick it with him for a couple hours. <clears throat> I, I mean, some of the, you know, some of the most, I don't know, kind of poignant moments from my life around that time for those couple years are with Dr. Bob. And, um, I remember two things. One time, uh, just being in a completely different part of town and just by sheer luck, he happened to be parked there and it was at night and I remember just kind of knocking on his door and he was surprised to see me as well. And I remember him invite, inviting me onto the bus and we kind of had a smoke and he only had this single light in this place. And it was just like, so you could just see this like smoke over this like little cast of light that just like barely lit both of us up. It was almost like, it, it might as well have just had like a one, one, uh, like a single candle burning in the corner, but it was this very intimate, almost seancey vibe inside this bus and um, I don't know, it was like a interesting kind of intimate, I don't know, it was kind of like it was just, he, like we were the only people in the world or something like that, sharing this moment. I, I don't know. That one really stands out to me. And another one is, you know, where he really expressed how, I don't know, he was really touched by my friendship in a lot of ways. And I, and I, and equally by his, I mean, to this day, I still think of him as like, one of one of the more formative people in my life, even though the, the time that he and I were, you know, were close with each other was brief. He's just a singularly important person in my life. And I, you know, I'll always carry that experience with me in some level. And, um, I remember one day walking and, and this was after a time where things were, were, were difficult for him. I mean, I probably didn't get into this as much, but I was saying when he was relatively well in his mental health and whatnot, um, he and I were, were very close. And then there were other times where he would, you know, when he was not doing as well, where, uh, he would go silent. He wouldn't respond to text. His bus would just be gone for a couple weeks at a time and I wouldn't see him. 
and um and uh, and life was really hard for him. I mean, the more I saw the realities of what it meant, you know, beyond the romanticism of like living in a bus and living outside of society. And, and I mean, he used to always say that he was on his own trip, you know, and I'm putting that in quotes. That's how he would talk about his life. He would just be like, man, I'm on my own trip, man, you know? But when I really saw the realities of what that looked like for a man in his mid sixties who lived on a bus and busked for change every day, I mean, there were times where when I really saw the realities and what to me were kind of the horrors of his daily life, which for him were completely commonplace, I mean, that's when I really realized that his life was something different. And it wasn't, you know, it was, I think what was hard for him about life as well is because I think even when he chose to live this way, there was a sense of romanticism about, oh, what is living on the fringe of society in this whole merry prankster's life and following the Grateful Dead and living outside of the construct of society, man, and all that sort of stuff. But when you get into your mid-60s and you need support and your health is failing and you need money and you need doctors, um, you know, I think you begin to consider very quickly, oh shit, maybe this trip that I was on is not going to, you know, provide for me in the ways that I really need it to now. Um, but, uh, sorry, someone's here talking outside my door. It's making it very hard for me to focus, but, um, Jesus Christ. Hold on here, guys. I'm gonna have to take a break here for a second, probably. Okay, we're back. Sorry, I had to take a quick break there. I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure if this distraction is going to keep going. I, I actually, I can't even, I don't even know if you guys were hearing that, but, um, but uh, I don't even know where we were. We were talking about Dr. Bob. Um, we were talking about um, his growing health concerns. I'll just say there, there were two things that happened between us that really demonstrated to me that um, the life, things in his life that were completely commonplace that to me were, were terrifying and really indicative of, of um, the troubles that he was facing based on his lifestyle choices. And I remember one time, well, the first time he used the bathroom in front of me on the bus with complete uh, abandon was shocking to me. I remember he and I were just sitting there. And at one point he just stands up and starts to unbuckle his belt. And I was, I had no fucking clue what was going on. And he pulled out from under the bench I was sitting on. He pulled out this crystal geyser, like water jug, one of these huge ones, just a, a gigantic one. And he I could see that it was just full of urine. And when he uncapped it and like basically turned his, turned his back to me and, and urinated in it, the stench was so overwhelming. It was like, I almost passed out. And, um, but the fact that the, he just did that in front of me with complete abandon and was just had no thought about it was, um, was alarming to me. Um, and then the second time was one time I was sitting across from him. He had this like little, t- little table in there with two chairs sitting opposite each other. And he had just uh, about a dozen or so spent cigarettes that he had found on the sidewalk throughout the day while he was busking. And he collected all of them. And he's sort of emptying the contents of all of them into this ashtray that he had. And with the, with the intention that he was going to take all the spent tobacco, whatever, and roll them into a single cigarette, a single smokable cigarette now. And, um... I remember he was talking, I remember he was talking about like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the state of the temple at the time of Jesus or whatever. I mean, he was Dr. Bob because he had a doctorate and uh, he could read Hebrew and he was like a biblical scholar and all that sort of stuff. I mean, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he was talking about all this stuff. And at one point he pauses and 
he kind of has this look of irritation on his face and he just sort of reaches into his mouth for something that's bothering him and he literally just jiggles something and pulls out a tooth. He just pulls a tooth out of his mouth. He like puts it in his palm. He just kind of rolls it around in the palm for a second and just sticks it in his breast pocket. And I was just like, oh my God. And I remember looking at him and this is the weird part. I don't know if this is going to make sense to you at all. This may sound morbid. It made sense to me at the time. I I still kind of understand where I was coming from. But I look at him and I just say, oh my God, was that your tooth? And he's like, yeah, that's been happening. And I go, I I pause for a second. I go, "Um, can I keep it? (laughs) And he starts cracking up and very convivially, he just goes, get your own damn tooth. Um, that, that was, uh, that was one of them. But I think I was just trying to say that, um, yeah, I, I, I think I was trying to articulate just kind of, I think he knew that his situation was becoming increasingly more desperate. And, um, you know, there was a time where I remember sort of stumbling on his bus one day and, um, and I don't put a lot of stock in this in terms of like, you know, what it actually means, but it was, it was a very poignant moment for us where, you know, I think Dr. Bob felt lucky that there was someone like myself, someone from like the working world who seemed to care about him and take his perspective on things seriously and, um, and spend time with him and, and not really judge him and just kind of see what his life was like and hear where he was at and try to support him in a way that I was willing to. And, um, and he said that he was, you know, seconds before I had seen him, I, he was literally just like in a desperate state, had been praying and just looked for a sign of some sort from, you know, that there was somebody out there who cared for him. And he said at that exact moment, I had like knocked on his bus. In fact, I mean, he used to, he believed that there was like a spiritual connection between us. And honestly, at the time, I sort of had felt that there was too. And I know it sounds it's crazy, but it's just the way I sort of, fr- my I, I framed my experience of him at that time and, and still continue to think about it was, you know, the challenges that Dr. Bob faced in his life and the circumstances that led him to where he was were, were very much his own. But in some ways, there was so much in common between us in terms of how we saw the world. And I think the values that we had, that there was a feeling that, you know, he saw me in a way that his life could have gone if he had taken one path. And I saw him as, you know, a way my life could have gone if I had taken another path. And I'm not saying that that's exactly true. I mean, a lot of the things that Dr. Bob, I think life was hard for Dr. Bob because I think he saw his life as the outcome of his own choices. But I think there was a lot he was struggling with that was completely outside of his control, his mental health, et cetera. I think his ability to manage his mental health was something that was outside of his control also in a lot of ways. Um, But, um, you know, there was a time where, you know, I, I know our relationship meant a lot to each other. And I'm not saying it changed the course of his life. I don't think it did. Um, um, but I think it, you know, for that time, it affected us both deeply. And I don't know where he is now. Um, you know, he ended up selling the bus. I think he got a van and I think he's down in the Santa Barbara area somewhere. But, um, but um, yeah, reflecting on that, reflecting on that time period was something I did for my class. And then the other one, it's a situation I, I may have described on this podcast, or I may not have. But um, we were, we, you know, our assignment was to write about uh, a time where um, someone mistook our communication for something else, and and what what did that miscommunication look like, or what did that misunderstanding look like, and 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 what did we do to navigate it? And I thought about this time period. I think it was like in like November something, and I think Trump was elected in like 2016, right? 
excuse me, and I remember the night before it was announced that he had won the election, but the next day all the news outlets sort of confirmed it. And it was a Wednesday night. And so that night, excuse me, sorry, I'm burping over here. That night I planned to do what I always do, which is I was going to go to the Berkeley Poetry Slam at the Starry Plow, um, which, you know, around that time, I had probably gone like nearly every Wednesday for the last year or two. And for me, you know, as a white dude, um, I mean, the social justice movement has has been going on for a long time, but this is sort of pre um, Me Too, um, maybe even pre Black Lives Matter. I don't know, but for me, it was a very consciousness raising type of experience where I was going and, you know, not necessarily, you know, everything's qualified for me. So it's like there, there's no club I want to be a part of. So even though I was sitting there and having a lot of my consciousness raised and thinking about things that maybe I hadn't thought a lot about otherwise, um, um. Yeah, suffice it to say, it was um, it was just a, a group I enjoyed being around, and I felt like I was learning a lot. I liked seeing the performers. I had, I felt endeared to a lot of them. I had spent a lot of time talking with a lot of them, and I just I just enjoyed being there. It was a community of people that I liked going to. So um, I was going there, and there was this, I was a smoker at the time, and I remember at the intermission I stepped outside, and of course because the election had just happened, everybody was recounting their disappointments and talking about how awful everything was. And there was a moment I was standing in a small circle of people, and I remember voicing my optimism that, yeah, this is awful, but, you know, four years is a relatively short amount of time, and, um, you know, I don't think it should, you know, discourage anyone from continuing pursuing their causes, and uh, and maybe even with more enthusiasm now. And um, I was not at all prepared for the response that I got, and this young man who had been sitting up against the, the wall at the time stood up and this was a this was a one of the regular performers there and a gentleman that I considered myself friendly acquaintances with we we talked many times probably had a couple of drinks together and he just darts up and just puts you know within like you know maybe half a foot from my face he sort of sticks his finger in my face and yells at me I'm a trans man um do you know what Trump and his people will do to me I'll probably be dead within a year and then he had like a couple friends of his who were kind of standing at a dif- distance until then who run up and they're just like bellowing in support of him. And they were just, just yelling at me, telling me to leave. And I'm a white male and my privilege and cis male that. And, and this is a safe space and get out of here. And I remember just feeling completely just kind of dumbstruck. I mean, I, I, I heard the words that they're saying. And even now I understand what they mean. I understand what they were trying to convey. I have no idea where, how I lit this kind of fuse. I didn't realize I was sitting on such a powder keg. And, um, I remember feeling shamed and embarrassed. I mean, it's like in, in a circumstance like that, I mean, it's, first of all, it's happening publicly and it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. If, if, if you have a group of people yelling at you in public, uh, you feel powerless and you can't defend yourself. You know, I'm not the type of person who's just going to start yelling and screaming back. I mean, like all these sort of, um, videos that go public now of people sticking cameras in each other's faces and they're having these sort of fundamentally embarrassing interactions where they're both yelling nonsense at each other and they're really just doing it for the cameras because they're they know that people are watching i'm perfectly fine just kind of eating crow and like walking away but i do remember a moment where i looked at this young man as his friends were yelling at me because it was kind of a moment where it was like you know i don't know if they saw it this way but i felt wow is this what you intended to start and I remember just kind of looking at him imploringly, like, hey, man, you know me. Is this really what I deserve for what I said? 
and there was no, I don't know. I don't want to pretend I know what he felt, but there was no, yeah, there was a feeling of like deal with it kind of a look in his, in his eyes. And I remember just, I tried to walk away with a sense of, um, like I with some dignity, like I was just recusing myself from the conversation, but I was very aware that I looked as deflated as I felt. And I remember just kind of walking off into the, you know, there's, it, you know, the, this bar is sort of in a residential neighborhood. And I, I just remember kind of shuffling off into the neighborhood on my way home and just feeling pretty defeated. And I never went back after that. I never went back to the poetry slam, even though I was there every week for, you know, a year or two. Um, but it's been, it's been an interaction that I've thought a lot about um, because, well, I mean, it hurt my feelings a lot. And I think especially in this time period that we're living in where it, you know, I understand where they're coming from. I understand, well, I should start with myself, which is, I understand I was trying to be optimistic. Um, but I also understand if you're in a group of predominantly, you know, uh, marginalized people or people of color or, uh, you know, people with different orientation or whatever, yeah, having a conservative presidency is going to make things significantly more tense for them over time. And especially, you know, we didn't see this at the time, but there was this strong belief that there would be widespread policy decisions that would um, strip rights away from these individuals. And, you know, there's no doubt that over the last four years, lives have been exponentially harder for people of color, for um, people of different orientations, etc. And um, and so that's justified. Um, um but I don't know that anything really happened in that interaction that warranted me getting yelled at. Um, and I also think, you know, my, my optimism was, I can understand it not being welcome, but I don't know that it's, I don't know that it was entirely misplaced because I think where I was coming from is I was 31 years old at the time and I had lived through a number of presidencies and I had participated in a few elections, but you know, the majority of the people there were just turning 21, maybe, and it, there could have been younger people in that crowd also because of, you know, the, the, the starry plow is a bar, but you don't have to be 21. You have to be over 18, but under 21 to be there, um, uh, until a certain time. And so my guess is a lot of the people who were standing outside were probably under 21 and leaving about the same time, uh, that I ended up being forced to leave at the intermission. But, um, you know, I think for a lot of these people, this was the first election they had participated in and they had spent most of their, um, young adult lives living under, you know, the, the, the relatively progressive presidency of the, of the country's first black president. So I think, you know, I had seen that, and historically that, you know, between presidencies, the, the, the pendulum sort of swings back and forth between conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal. And although Trump was a singularly awful uh, conservative president to take, take, uh, to take, to take office, there was a relatively good chance that um, that um, we would be able to change that, if not in four years, at least in eight. So um, I don't think my optimism was entirely misplaced also. But I think for these people, what they had witnessed, it was confusing. And it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a confusing change in the tide of current events. And um, I don't think that that gentleman was wrong. Um, they felt how they felt about it because of their own, you know, field of experience or their own perspective or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was one of these things where I, where I felt, uh, I don't know, kind of shamed and embarrassed for something I, you know, maybe didn't deserve to feel that awful about. But, um, 
but such is life. Anyway, um, we're, we're definitely over our time here. We got to wrap up. Sorry, we were punctuated there for a moment. <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm not. Frankly, I'm not even sure if you guys heard the disturbance that was going on before. But, um, but uh, let's do this. Let's wrap it up here, and uh, <laughs> we'll just have to pick it up next week. So. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, if you like the show, if you enjoy it, give us a five-star review and write a couple sentences about why you like the show. If you'd like to share it, think of at least one person in your life who you think would like it and share your favorite episode with them. Um, if you don't want to help us out, you can go fuck yourself. Uh, thanks to Matt for coming to visit us and saying hello. Um, I'm actually thinking... I'm actually thinking about something that Chris D'Elia did, which is at some point he did have a guest on the show. I don't know if that'll be the 100th episode. I don't know if that'll be our year anniversary. I don't know, but um, maybe you guys can let me know. Should it just be me the entire time and let's just stick with that format? Or would you like to have a guest on the podcast at some point? Let me know. Um, Otherwise, uh, yeah, that'll do it. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. I'll see you next week. But ciao for now.